You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Thanks for joining us for our study of six of the Psalms of Ascent from the Old Testament. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and get ready to open God's Word together. Hi. It's good to see you. Uh, It's great to be back here at Rolling Meadows. I feel like I've been gone for quite a while. Uh, I think I have, actually. It's great to have the rest of the campuses join us as well. We're really excited about studying God's Word together in um, Psalm 127. We're in the middle of a series that uh, we're calling Ascent because it's about the Psalms of Ascent. You might not know this, but you have this big fat book of Psalms, there's a hundred and something Psalms, and uh, there's a little section kind of in the middle, Psalm 120 to 134, which are called the Psalms of Ascent because they were the songs that the people of Israel would sing when they would go on a, a pilgrimage to uh, the temple in Jerusalem, usually th- three times a year for a festival. And so uh, there's a lot of imagery in them that uh, is drawn from the temple, is uh, drawn from the journey, that kind of thing. And uh, they, they talk about what kinds of things we can learn about God and his activity in our lives. Uh, they're really encouraging psalms as a, as a general rule. This one's actually a, called a wisdom psalm as well. So if you want to be a wise person, you should... Uh, Listen and adhere to what it has to say. So Psalm 127. We're only going to do the first two verses though, okay? Because I got stuck on those two because I loved them so much. So don't worry, it's not going to be shorter. Uh, It's still going to be, yeah, it's just two verses though. Um, Listen, I want you to imagine with me for a minute um, that there are two church planters. Church planters are kind of my heroes. Uh, They're the people who have the ability to go like parachute into a community, oftentimes don't know anybody, and they end up forming teams of newly converted Christian people or maybe folks that they brought with them in order to reach an entire community with the gospel. But when they go in, they don't know anybody, and so they have to kind of drum up support. They they, um, have events and activities, and eventually, after a year or two, they end up having uh, a a launch service, which is usually less than what they expected, or it's more than they expected. And then the next week, there's like, you know, half as many people that were there, which usually depresses them. But over time, Lord willing, they're able to, to grow their churches. So I want you to imagine that there are two church planters. Uh, one of them named John and, and the other Jeff, okay? John and Jeff go to seminary together. Uh, they take the same classes, they have the same degree in seminary, they are equally gifted, if that's possible, Uh, both committed to preaching the Word of God, both know what they're talking about, both have a heart for their community, both of them graduate the same time and they're thinking through what they're going to do next, they both have a spouse and a couple of kids, and so they're thinking, okay, what... What can we do? We have a heart for church planting. We've got a mentor who's got a focus on church planting. Both have the same mentor. And they decide together that one of the most unreached places in all of the United States, in fact, North America, is uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. And so they think, okay, so we want to go somewhere where there's a great need for churches and we're going to go plant. Not together. One of us will plant in the northern part of Salt Lake and the other one will plant in the southern part of Salt Lake. So John in the north and Jeff in the south. And they go together. They're friends even. They go together. When they get to the airport, they go their separate ways. As I said, they start the process of developing, you know, relationships and By God's grace, after a year, they have enough people for what they call a core team that they're going to now plant this church. They're going to start the first service. They have it on the same weekend. Both about 30, 40 people consistently start coming to the church. In the north, John's church starts off that way. It, It has a little bit of difficulty, but as it goes on, it just starts to build and build and build and build. Eventually, they've got to hire more staff, and then they need to have a building, and they've got all these challenges, good challenges, right, for for a church plant. So John is just, he's being asked to go and speak at the conferences now because he's had such an amazing success in in this hard-to-reach area. People want to know, what did you do? 
What was the process that you involved in? And he goes and he speaks to the conferences and he tells everybody all about all the stuff that happened. He's got great stories about how all these Mormon people are coming to faith in Jesus. In the South, like I said, Jeff's church started off, same thing. But then they reached about 100 people and it stopped. Didn't, it didn't seem to matter whatever they did in their community. Same things that John was doing. In fact, they talk all the time. Same things, same processes. But that church plateaued at 100 people. Jeff would go to the conferences and listen to John tell him how to do this, which was exactly what he had done. And yet a different result. What's the difference? Why the difference? Well, you can go to the Bible and you can look at passages that actually kind of explain it. 1 Corinthians 3, 7, uh, Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. And so we can say theologically, well, well, God is the one who determines whether the church is going to be big or small. That's in his hands. You can't go around and try to convince everybody to come to your church. It's not going to work. Some people will think you're an idiot. Other people will think you're great. You know, if you spend enough time in church ministry, one of the things you learn very quickly is that uh, we, we have a real process-oriented, like, packaged formula that everybody tells you, this is how it is that you make a church go, right? You, 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 it's like baking a cake. My daughter has gotten really into baking recently, and God bless that girl Right? I mean, of all the things your daughter could be good at, baking, praise. The, I'm never going to be a thin man. But she has recently been, been doing this sort of stuff. So she, she, uh, she, she takes the ingredients and she puts them into the oven, of course, and then she pulls them out and I, I get to eat it. And when I'm eating it, I'm like, this is fantastic, amazing. What did you do? Why do you, like, you have a gift, Sophie. She'll say, well, Dad, I just followed, I followed the instructions, of course, right? I didn't deviate at all. Well, yeah, that's the way that most people approach church planting or, or church ministry is that you start with one thing and then you add the next and you add the next and then add the next. You put it in the oven, right? And out comes a church. But what happens if it doesn't work that way? Okay, I'm talking about stuff that relates to me. Okay, what about if, what about if you go to all the business meetings and all of the webinars and they tell you, okay, so here's how you'd build your business. You know, A plus B plus C plus D, a little bit of sugar, a dash of hope, and you shove it in the oven and out comes Google. We tend to approach, like if you ever read like the, the people who are talking about relationships, you know, how do you get married? Right, that's what, guy, look, if you shave enough, wash your body enough, smell good enough, right? Say the right things enough, you know, you, you pop it in the oven and out comes Beyonce. There she is, right? <laughs> that's how it works, right? Is it in, in your life? You want to be a superstar athlete? You just follow the program and out at the end, you know, you're, you're, you're Justin Verlander. You're LeBron James at the end, right? Your life is gone. With all the things you've planned, you, I'm going to go this way, and then it works out. And then at the end, you can say, let me teach all the rest of you how to do this. I'm going to just tell you how we reverse engineered it. And it worked out exactly like we planned. Some people in the room are like, yeah, that's exactly what I don't understand. We plan to have kids, you know, every three years we had them on the dot. It's not that complicated, but other people in the room are like, man, we plan to have kids and we still don't have them. We plan to have them every three years and we had them every one year. Holy smokes. Right? What's the difference? That's what this passage is about. Simply put, if the Lord isn't in it, neither are we. Look, yeah, that's the point of the whole passage. But here's, here's, the, here's the way the psalmist goes about this. He's going to give you three images that make that point. If the Lord isn't in it, neither are we. 
going to give three images. That's the way Psalms work. They're, they're poetry, right? They kind of evoke images in your mind and touch your heart so you feel something. Three images, one point, and then I, wanted to, I, I want to apply that point in a couple, in a couple ways. So that, that's where we're headed. So here are the images. Psalm 127, the first image. It's about a house. Unless the Lord uh, builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. This is an interesting little word. It means it's a waste of time. It's the kind of thing I used to say to my boys when they want to wrestle me when they were little. Come on, Dad, let's go and wrestle. And I'm like, this is going to be a complete waste of time for you. If, if they knew the word better, I would have said, this is vanity, boys. It's going to be completely vain because you know in five minutes, you're going to both be grabbing my legs while I'm walking around the house like this, and you won't be able to stop me. It's better if you go into the gym and work out. That might not be vain because eventually you could get me, but, but now it's, it is, it's vain. It's a complete waste of effort. It will not turn out how you plan. So yeah, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, labor in a way that's a complete waste of time. It's almost like they shouldn't have done it before. This, what is a house though? Well, you know, we're probably talking, remember the Psalm of Ascents? They're climbing up to, uh, to Jerusalem where there's a temple. Solomon wrote this Psalm. So he's probably talking about the temple. He had some experience, right? He's the one who built the temple and he understands all the things that went in. When I say all the things, all the providence, all the kind of Greasing of the wheels that the Lord had to make, had had him happen so that the temple could be built. But you know, listen, you know this. If you've been involved in any building at all in your life, in any place, you know full well how hard it is to get that dumb thing built. I was staying with some friends just uh, a couple weeks ago in Canada, and I was in their house, which was the product of something like five to seven years of building. And when I say that, it's not like they started building five years ago, had like a foundation and little pieces, and they just added to it when they had time. Nope. They had to start by petitioning the city to let them have this piece of property and put, pro- put, a, put a house on it, which took forever because cities seemed to not want to have that happen. They eventually had to actually put a road in. They were like hey, isn't it your job as the city to put in roads? And the city was like, yeah, but not today. So you're going to put the road in, right? You have the money. You can put the road in. They lived, seriously, they lived in a trailer for two years. Family of five in a trailer, for, which was fun for me because I made lots of jokes about the kinds of people who live in trailers, right, for, for two years. Eventually, They build the house, they get all the things passed through a series of all these circumstances and lots of money. Eventually they build the house and just after they build it, they have this massive flood. In fact, the entire area has such a big flood that the whole downstairs of the house, which was supposed to be passed by the inspector like within days, is completely flooded out. And they're like, oh my word, this is never going to work now. We've gone through so many iterations of this house. So many guys coming out and saying, you need to have a bar there so that people won't slip down that single step. So many fire people coming out. Listen, I know that this is made out of concrete, but you need to spray it with this other thing. So if the sun gets too close, it'll be safe. All the rules. And eventually they got to this point where these, the flood happens, but all of the nitpicky guys in the city government were actually sent to all the other places that had floods. So they got the old guy who was just wanted to retire and he just would pull out his, his stamp that says, go for it. And he'd be, he sat at their kitchen table. And he's like, have you finished the house? Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, did you do this? Uh-huh. Didn't even look at it. Kajunk, he started talking about baseball. Oh, you like that team? And he's chunking and he leaves the house and they're like, oh my word. Thank you, God. Why? Well, but, uh, because unless the Lord builds the house, <laughs> those who build it labor in vain. It's a waste of time. My ter- my, the church I, ca- I just came from before I came to Harvest, uh, the day before COVID hit, and by hit, I mean like everything shut down, the NBA shut down, the day before we passed a $20 million building project. The night before, the whole church was like, all right, we're going to do this. And the next day, no, we're not. <laughs> right. 
right? We can sweat and bleed, but unless the Lord superintends, it's a waste of time. Or to say it another way, if the Lord's not in it, neither are we. Second image, like I said, this is going to sound repetitive because he's trying to make the same point repeatedly through these images. Unless the case is about a watchman watching over a city. Unless the Lord uh, watches over the city, the, the, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's a waste of time, okay, for him to stay awake. Now, a watchman in, the, in those days was a guy who sat in a tower or on a wall in every city Uh, there were walls that surrounded the city because foreign invaders would come in all the time. People did not have houses outside the walls. It was a stupid idea. It's a good, quick way to get your house taken from you by the invading hordes from the other community. So you'd wall in your cities. You'd have watchmen on those walls. Here's a picture of something that's like that. And the watchman, he'd sit, you know, up here or up here, And his job was to make sure that he could see out in the distance and see the coming enemy hordes if they were to come, if there was any danger that was coming. And he would sound the alarm with his little horn. And the whole city, the sooner he could sound the alarm, everybody would be ready to repel the invaders. Now at night, that's usually the most important time because, you know, prior to this year in places like San Francisco, you didn't steal stuff during the day, but apparently you do now. You just steal whatever. But back then, they would come at night because you're under the cloak of darkness and you'd show up and, and they couldn't see you that well. They didn't have big spotlights. So the most important guy was the guy who has had the night shift. And I don't know if you've ever been driving at night. Yes, right? Most of the women in the room are, yeah, I've driven at night for a little while until I got tired and then I stopped, right? Went to the hotel. Every man in the room's like, why would you ever do that? You know, I can do it. I can drive through the night. So, yeah, we, yeah, so we're, gonna, we're driving to California. We're driving to Florida. We're going to do it straight overnight. You know, and sometime by 3 a.m., you're like, oh, my word. Closing your eyes, so you stop at this, you know, 7-Eleven, and you get the bucket of Mountain Dew, you know, and, and next to it, you've got a coffee. You put the coffee in the Mountain Dew. Stinking five-hour energy, monster energy drinks. You're eating whatever's near you just to keep yourself awake. You know, you slapping yourself. It's hard to stay awake late at night, especially when you're tired. And it was hard for watchmen as well. My point is that you work really hard to stay awake. Work really hard. And so what we've got here is in this image is a watchman sitting up in his little tower there and he's looking out in the distance and he's starting to feel the effects of the long day and he's trying to stay awake, you know, because he's got to be alert. But it's completely in vain if there's a huge enemy horde that comes at night and comes upon the city. It won't even matter if he stayed awake or not. The only way for him to succeed at his job is for God to keep the horde away. Doesn't matter how hard he works. The only way for you to succeed in getting to Florida is you keep, God keeps the other cars out of the way. Or to put it another way, if the Lord's not in it, neither are we. Third one. It's about a farmer. Uh, it's in vain. Same word, right? It's a waste of time that you rise up early. Can I just stop here for a minute and get all of you early risers to foc- focus on this, this little line here? It is in vain that you rise up early. Can I, amen? Amen? That's in the Bible, okay? 6 a.m., what are you doing? It is in vain that you rise up early. The Lord is not up at 5 a.m. I'm telling you that right now, he's not up. It is in vain that, that you rise up early and you go late to rest. Eating, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. See, it's interesting, he just, he puts the word bread in the middle here to try to encapsulate all that goes into making bread. It's, it, you have to go out, till the soil, plant the seed, you know, wait for the rain, make sure it's guarded and taken care of, protected from the hail, 
make sure the birds stay away. And then eventually, over time, it grows up and you have a stalk of wheat. You take the wheat, you put it in the barn, you thresh it, you're gonna get rid of the wheat and chaff. You take that wheat, you smush it all together, you give it to somebody, they put it in the oven and out comes bread. And so what the psalmist is doing here is he's saying, look, I want you to think about all that process of making bread. In fact, if I were to describe that process, the best way to talk about the energy that goes into it is, is this, anxious toil. Isn't that, isn't that what it is? You're working your tail off all the time Striving completely, the same same language is used to describe uh, how Eve gives birth, right? The pain in childbirth. It's the curse that's put on her by God in Genesis 3.16. In in anxious toil, you will give birth. So, So he's saying, yeah, look, when you rise up early and go late to rest, if I had to describe the making of bread to you, I would call it anxious toil, this long day's filled with all sorts of difficulty. Have you ever done any farming? I, I worked in a farming community for a little while. And uh, I would sometimes go out with the kids. I was, young, I was a youth pastor, so I'd sometimes go out with the kids while they were working uh, just to hang out with them and see, see what they're doing. And all the kids in the farming community would work either for their dads or their friend's dad in the fields during the summertime. And, and one of the jobs they did was picking rocks. That's what they called it. I, what do you do for the summer? I'm picking rocks. I was like, do they grow somewhere? Do you have to, like apples? You, so here's what you do when you pick rocks. You go out into a field with your little pickup truck. You put the pickup truck in the middle, and you look on this field that's supposed to be turned into wheat, and everywhere around are these, like, different-sized boulders. And your job is to go over, grab one of them, pick it up, put it in the back of the truck, and then just keep doing this from 5 a.m., until late at night. This is your job. I, I was there for like an hour because <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing this. But I was there picking up a couple of rocks. I got all scraped up and I was exhausted. The sun was coming down and they had a shovel in the back of the truck and I, I, I leaned the shovel up on the, on the ground. This is a trick I learned from all the construction workers in the world. I, they, they put the shovel down and they lean on it because you know, you're, you're busy making the road, right? If you're leaning on the shovel. So I'm leaning on the shovel, and the guy who owned the farm, he showed up in his truck, and I'm leaning there in the shovel, and I said, hey, how's it going? And he said, shovel handle hot? I said, what? Is the shovel handle hot? No. Why aren't you touching it then? Why aren't you digging, <laughs> right? <laughs> did, you, did you heat it up so bad with all your hard work that it got good and hot that you had to give it a break? I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to go home now because I, I don't want to do this. It's terrible. But that's, listen, if you, if you farm, you know. It's so difficult. And there's so many things out of your control, right? There are people these days who make uh, the observation that people who live in rural communities seem to be more religious than those who live in urban settings. So if you go out to the countryside and you talk to a bunch of farmers, it's almost impossible to find a secular farmer, somebody who's like, yeah, I don't believe in anything. And the reason for that, likely, is because every part of their life is dependent upon stuff that is outside their control. If the rain doesn't come, we don't eat. If too much rain comes, It'll flood everything away. If the hail comes on my field and not my neighbor's field, I put up hail cannons and maybe they don't work. If there's a whole bunch of birds who decide to start sitting in my field, right, and don't believe the scarecrow, then they're going to eat all of it. If I don't have the perfect situation all the way through, it doesn't matter how much I put in the soil, how much I do, if I don't have the perfect situation all the way through to the end, We don't have any bread. So you're always worried. You're always anxious, right? But this, what this passage is saying though is, look, um, you eat the bread of anxious toil, but he, he gives to his beloved sleep is probably the better translation is while they sleep. 
Because that's pretty much what farming is in the end, isn't it? And it's basically uh, you work and work and work and work and then you go to bed and it grows while you're asleep and didn't pay attention to it at all. And that's what the passage is saying. Is that, Listen, if God is not growing it when you're asleep, you're hooped. You got nothing. So you can work and work, morning to night, anxious toil, all that you want. But if God is not in it, neither are we. So what's the point? Well, I've said it several times, but here's Proverbs saying it probably better. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I'm going over there today. I have a plan. I've drawn it out. I know how to get there. I know exactly who I'm talking to, when I'm going to talk to him, and at the end of the day, I'll look back, and all of those things are the case. And yet, the proverb is saying, no, actually, it's only the case if the Lord establishes it that way. You can plan all you want, but it's the Lord who establishes our steps. If God is not in it, neither are we. Okay, let's apply it then. So uh, there are several practical ways for us to apply this to our lives, but let me give you one wrong way and two really right ways, okay? One wrong, two right. Makes three because I'm a pastor, right? Three, okay. You guys will get that later. Here's the first way, which is wrong. Look, if it's in vain to get up early and go to bed at night late, if it's in vain to uh, you know, try to stay awake when the, when, when the enemy hordes are coming, if it's in vain to build the house, why do any of that? Why work at all? This is, some of you might be shocked at that. You're like, well, people actually interpret it that way. Yeah, like every 18-year-old boy in the world, right? That, what's the point, man? If I'm not in control of it, what's the point in doing, doing it? I don't understand. Well, a- actually, um, this passage is not really denigrating work. I mean, it might sound that way. It's not denigrating work. It's basically making the argument that it's through your work that God will achieve it, but unless God is working through it, it won't be achieved. So don't faff around and not do anything. Because if you do that, you cut God off at the legs. And he's like, well, I was going to use your work to accomplish it. The Bible doesn't really have a whole lot of time for for this whole kind of like, hey, I'm just going to sit back, relax, and play video games all the time. Okay? It it doesn't. Uh, This is one of my favorite passages in in the whole Bible because it uses a word that I think we should resurrect. Uh, This one, sluggard, right? I mean, it's great. Uh, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Hey, guys, hey, sluggards. Hey, slothful. Hey, lazy guy. You see the ant? Go. Stand over the ant. Watch what the ant does. Consider her ways, and you're going to be wise. You're going to have a really good future if you consider the ways of the ant. All right, what are the ways of the ant? Well, without having any chief, officer, or ruler, or mom yelling... Right? Or, or, uh, you know, massive motivation, somebody standing over you, why are you not doing anything? Without having any of that, uh, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. She thinks ahead. She considers the future. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? Just as an aside really quickly here, I used to say this to my, my boys in the morning. Well, this is how I, this was their alarm. I would walk into the room and I would say, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? Right? And then I would quote this. When will you rise from your sleep? Uh, a little sleep. So he's quoting the sluggard now. A little sleep, a little slumber. I'm so tired. I had to make my lunch yesterday. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. That's what, he's, that's what sluggards say. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The Bible's full of instructions of, of work ethic and pushing forward and doing the best you possibly can. That's not what 
Psalm 127 is saying. It's not saying there's no, there's no point in planning, there's no point in doing anything. It's not what it's saying. It's saying through good planning, through hard work, through picking rocks, God will bring about the bread. But God's the one who brings about the bread. So if that's a negative one, uh, what about a couple of positive applications for this? Well, um, first positive one, uh, you, you, you got to learn to hold things loosely. You got to learn to hold things loosely. Look, if God's providence is the thing that will make our plans go, you have to realize, and I'm sure you do, that sometimes God's plan and ours, not the same. And yet we find so many of us grasping so strongly to the plan that we had. God, why won't you do this? I made the plan. It's perfect. Then there's a left turn, and we're like, I don't want to go left. And you grab the plan, and you hold it, and you hug the plan. Instead of hugging the God who's going to get you there. You're going to have to learn to hold things loosely. Ultimately, because God is wiser than you. So I had a friend who was playing football. Uh, he, very good football player. He... Uh, was playing in college, uh, freshman, his freshman year. He came in kind of not as a really big recruit, but he was recruited by several schools. But when he came in, he uh, really immediate, immediately got playing time because he's just tenacious linebacker, really, really gifted guy. Um, there were some people talking about him meet, perhaps being able to you know, go, go pro, get into the draft, those sorts of things, even his freshman year. His sophomore year, he came out. He was all league toward the end of the season, there was some talk about him, you know, making the All-American list. And then in the last game of the season, he, <laughs> he went diving into a pile of players to stop the running back, hits them, and somehow his back legs went that way and his body also went that way, <laughs> just folded. When they came and they found him, he was on the ground with his leg in a position that it should not be in. It was turning an unnatural way. They picked him up, they put him on the cart, wheeled him off, and while he was wheeling him off, he did the thing, hey, I'm okay, thumbs up. He got into the locker room, they took him to the hospital. They kept reassuring him, hey, we think we can work with this. We think it's going to work out. It's going to be great. But eventually, they f he found out days later, uh, as a doctor sat on the edge of his bed, showing him his x-rays, he said, I don't think you're ever going to play football again. It will be a minor miracle if you walk. When he told me all about this... Uh, <laughs> I remember sitting there with him and he was describing the scene in the hospital when nobody else was around, how he would lay there in the bed and he would say out loud to God, how dare you? This is all I've ever wanted my whole life. And at the last second, you rip it away from me. How am I supposed to follow a God like that? Remember I talked about the church planters, you know, at the beginning, Jeff and John. When Jeff goes to the conference and he hears John speak or hears all the other guys speak, you know what he does? He sits there in the middle. I used to speak at church planting conferences. Every time there was some church planter who would come up to me and he would say, here's what I did to plant my church. They have a guy who's speaking at this conference who did exactly the same thing. He's got 7,000 people and is on, the, on all the broadcasts, but I have nothing. Tell me what I did wrong. You sit there and you're like, I... unless the Lord builds a house, the builders labor in vain. Yeah, but why won't he build my house? Why is he building his? It seems so unfair. I, I've given my whole life for this. 
they would say. Imagine buying a business. I've known people who've bought businesses. In fact, this one group of guys, they were going to give 90% of the income from this particular business away to the Lord. Their vision was to make a billion dollars a year. It's a big vision, right? And they were going to give 900 million to the Lord. I, I used to make jokes. Oh, so you're going to live on 100 million? That'll be hard. But they were going to give 900 million. They, they, their business plan and their ideas were fantastic. And I was like, they would say, isn't this so great? God's given us this vision. We're going to go forward. We're going to make them $900 million for the kingdom of God. And it's going to go every, it's going to be fantastic, Jeff. And I would say, great. Five months later, their business had crashed so badly that their homes now were on the block. They owed so much money. I remember sitting with one of them at, 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 a, at a restaurant and he sat across from me and he said, why would God not want $900 million? I don't, he said, look, I know we were, this is a great plan. Do you know how many ministries, do you know how many missionaries need this money? Do you know how many churches need this money? I don't get it. I don't understand. Meanwhile, Elon Musk is selling electric cars and he doesn't love Jesus at all. I don't get it, Jeff. Tell me, tell me why the difference. When they ask me that, I, I usually take them to a passage of scripture that has become a favorite of mine because I think it answers some of the questions. This is in James chapter 4. Here's what James says. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Right? Or plant a church. Uh, fund a ministry. Oh, great stuff. Noble goals. Here's the plan. We're going to go there, Naperville, and we are going to go and do this and open the business, and then we are going to make money out of it, a good profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You have no idea what's going to happen the next day. What, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know, the candle when it starts to burn out and the the, the smoke sort of just dissipates into the, that's how long your life is. The mist that comes upon for all you early risers and you're driving through the fields in this beautiful, but you're praying that it would burn off so that the sun would shine. And it does, like in 30 minutes, it's gone. That's your life. That's my life. Small, tiny, short. Instead of being so boastful and I can make this happen. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. Your heart is dependent upon God making it beat. Every breath that you breathe is dependent on God making the atmosphere capable of breathing. If we will live and, and we'll do this or that, uh, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting, it's evil. What boast? Planning without understanding that God is the one who makes it go. That you're not in charge. I'm not in charge of my life, of my world. And that God, as the sovereign ruler, has prerogative over me and his world to bring about his good ends. I'm not the main character in the story. He uses me and other characters like you to bring about the main character, Jesus' goals. So you got to hold it loosely because most of the time, the things that we plan for tomorrow aren't necessarily what the Lord is planning for tomorrow. We face curveballs, we fume, we have our hearts broken, but look, we don't control our lives. We don't. He does. All right, so here's the last right one, okay? So hold things loosely. Uh, second, man, you got to trust God fully because he loves us. It's not just hold him loosely. It's I believe that by letting go of my plan that I work so hard at, 
I believe that by letting go, I am actually placing it into the hands of one who is more capable, wiser, and who loves me. Isn't that what Psalm 127 said? Kind of at the end, where we just ran by, it's in vain, you rise up early, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to who? You're the beloved. Sleep. It's not like God's like, okay, you've let go of this now, I'm going to take it and I'll do whatever I want. He loves, 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 he's awfully fond of you. So my wife and I, we like to cycle a little bit. Illinois is amazing for cycling. Chicago, we've loved going all over the place. Usually what happens is that I go out and I, I like the adventure of discovery. And so I ride all over the place and I f- end up in places I've never been before and have to use my map to get back. And then I go and sit down behind my computer and I find out where it is that I went. And okay, I could have gone that way and this way. And then I map it out on the thing called map my ride. And then I send it to my phone. And the next time I go out and do this. So I'll ride several times, several paths that she's never ridden. And then I'll say, you love this one, Jeannie. So we go out and we'll ride together. Inevitably, though, we'll get to a location where the path veers, you know, the ro- one road goes this way and this way, or we're on one of those paths and one of them goes to the right and the left. And I'm like, man, this all looks the same to me because everywhere is just a bunch of corn and little trees. And I, don't, I don't know. So I'll stop and I'll pull my phone out and I'll start thinking. Like, and she'll, stand, she'll sit there and she'll look both ways and she says, I feel like it's this way. I feel like it's this way. And I'm like, hmm, I'm not sure your feelings really matter about which way it is. But I feel like it's this way. And I'll say, but honey, I'm pretty sure it's this way because it's on my phone, which I downloaded from four hours of research on the maps. So if Google's right at all, it, it's this way. Yeah, I don't know. This just looks right. You, she's never been there before. She doesn't have any, any idea at all. So I say to her, honey, I have more experience with this. I have more research done. I've seen more about it. I am wiser. I say this about a lot of things to her. I am, I'm kidding, right? Notice I'm like God in this illustration. Um, I, I am wiser in this particular moment, so we should follow me. Now, here's the thing. If she wasn't my spouse... If she just met me on on the side of the road and started riding together with me, I can understand how even after me saying, hey, I know I have all this information and stuff, she might be hesitant because she'll be like, yeah, but I don't know if your heart is for me. I don't know if I can actually trust you. But if it's her husband, I love her. I do not want to take her to the middle of a pond and let her drown. I want to to go in the wise, loving way that's good for her. Guys, do you see that the Lord is leading us down these paths and we don't know which way to go, but the Lord, by his providence, will shut one of the doors down. And then you will have to go that direction. And you and I are like, (laughs) but he loves you. And he knows more than you. Why are you freaking out? You want to see how you're supposed to interact with the providence of God in the Bible? Acts chapter 16 is a passage that you would have run by without even thinking about it. It's just, it's like a travel itinerary. You'd be like, whoa, great, Luke. Thank you for including your itinerary. What time does your plane leave? And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. So think states or regions like the the Midwest or the Pacific Northwest, whatever. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. What? Yeah, yeah. The reason they were going through Phrygia and Galatia is because they were forbidden. How? Well, we don't really know. But you probably through providence, probably God was like, yeah, we're shutting that door. You know, one of you gets sick. Luke is probably, oh, my stomach. Well, we're not going to go. We're not, we're not going to go to Asia then. The food's not going to be good for you. You know, I, it, we're, we're not going there. They might have wanted so desperately to go to Asia. They might have a heart for it and saying, but we want to reach the people in Asia. And the Lord somehow whoop, shut the door. So they go through Phrygia and Galatia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted, 
to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. How? I don't know. Maybe he wrote it in the clouds. Maybe he showed up like, like the donkey with Balaam, right? And he spoke through like all the farm animals. Don't go this way. I don't know. Probably though through providence. Probably meaning that God orchestrated circumstances in just such a way that they were not permitted or able to go that direction. Maybe their cart broke down. Maybe one of their friends had to go to his family's house in another location and they weren't going to go that way. But somehow God stopped them and And Luke says, yeah, that was the spirit of Jesus who did that. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia. This is where Philippi is. You know the book of Philippians? He was standing there urging them and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You know what you don't have in this passage? Paul and Luke and all his party complaining. But we wanted to go this way. This is a waste of time. I had the plans. What you got is them saying, hey, Lord, you're in charge here. We're going to try to go that way. But if it stops, you're going to get us where you need us. It's almost like they believe that God is wiser and loves them and wants his mission to be accomplished, but in his way. Because if the Lord doesn't build the house, the builders will labor in vain. Look, let me finish with this. <laughs> A story about somebody who you should know. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata is one of the great modern Christian examples regarding suffering that the church has. If you don't know her story, I will read to you what she said about her story. She says, for years, I was one of those who insisted handicaps happened to other people, not me. But all that changed on a hot July afternoon in 1967 when my sister Kathy and I went to a beach on the Chesapeake Bay for a swim. The water was murky and I didn't bother to check the depth when I hoisted myself onto a raft and anchored offshore. I dove in and instantly felt my head hit something hard. My neck snapped and I felt a strange electric shock. Underwater and dazed, I felt myself floating and unable to surface for air. Thankfully, Kathy noticed my plight and quickly came to the rescue. When she pulled me out of the water, I saw my arm slung over her shoulder, and yet I couldn't, feel my, I couldn't feel that arm. I knew then that something had happened, something terrible. Later at the hospital, I learned I had severed my spinal cord and would be left a quadriplegic for the rest of my life. I was devastated. Lying in that hospital, I recalled that just months earlier, I had asked God to draw me closer to his side. Now, stuck in bed, I wondered if my paralysis was his idea of an answer to that prayer. If this is the way that he treated new Christians, how could he ever be trusted with another prayer again? Obviously, God's ways were far different from mine. And for a long time, that idea both frightened and depressed me. But where else could I turn? To whom could I go? I remember praying, God, if I can't die, which is what I want to do. In fact, she tells stories about how much she tried to kill herself in that hospital, about how much she would pray that the Lord would just end her life right there. She prayed, if I can't die, then show me how to live. Many days afterwards, I would sit in front of a Bible holding a mouth stick between my teeth and flipping the pages, praying that God would help me put together the puzzle pieces of my suffering. You guys do know um, that Johnny Erickson Tata, she formed a ministry called Johnny and Friends that has had more impact in helping people who were paralyzed than maybe anyone else in the whole world over the last number of years. When you see handicap ramps and you see accessibility things, a lot of that is due to the work that she's done both in the church and outside. 
whenever you want somebody to come and speak about suffering, Johnny Erickson Tata is one of the first people to come to the conference, and she sits there in her wheelchair. She can't move her arms at all. She can just move her head. And she talks about what it's like, what it's been like for her to be this way. On the 53rd anniversary of that accident, she wrote a little note on her webpage to all who were interested. She said, oh, dear friend, never did I imagine what God would do over 53 years of paralysis. Every single one of those years of quadriplegia has been lived one day at a time, sometimes so moment by moment that I barely thought I could endure one minute more. But God has seen me through every minute. And he wants to do the same for you. Look, just look back at your own life and think to yourself for a minute, hasn't he always been proven wiser? Seriously, in all the left-hand turns and curveballs and all the things at the moment where we were so angry, hasn't he always been proven wiser? Hasn't his love always been demonstrated to us in what the outcome was? As hard as it is, as much as we don't want to go back and experience it again, as hard as it was, he's wiser and he loves us. We can trust him, even, even with the curveballs, especially with the curveballs. He's in charge. We are not. And that's a very good thing. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your grace and for your word. I'm thankful, Father, for your providence. I'm thankful, Father, that you were working out your world according to your plans and no one can stop you. I'm thankful, Father, that we are part of that story and that you will accomplish in our personal lives all that you have promised for us. It's not going to look like what we planned. Help us to open our hands to that and recognize the one in whose hands we're laying it is the one who knows all, sees all, has all power in heaven and on earth, and is very fond of us. So help us to follow more closely, more cheerfully, with greater dependence, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.